Hi folks, welcome to this week's edition of the Finance Hour. The topic of this week's podcast is Where Have All the Jobs Gone? We interview Doron Paluch, who's a partner at Burgess Paluch Legal Recruitment. We talk to Doron about the journey of his career, as well as getting some great tips for people attending job interviews. Then the next segment is Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. I'm not going to tell you too much about that because I want you to listen right through to the end. And of course, we have Propellerhead of the Week. And in Propellerhead of the Week, this week, I talk about setting up your kids with bank accounts to get them into good spending habits early on. Enjoy the episode. And if you've got any feedback at all, please email me at advice at adaptwealth.com.au or chuck us a note on the Adapt Facebook page. For previous podcasts, you can Google the Finance Hour or subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks and enjoy the show. afternoon and welcome to the Finance Hour, whether you're listening live on Jair or indeed on our podcast. This is a show where we make sense of the world of finance and business and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. My name's Ruben Zelwa. I'm financial planner and owner at Adapt Wealth Management and I welcome your SMSs today with any questions on 047 just a reminder that you can see older, listen to older versions of this podcast uh, either by simply Googling the Finance Hour and you'll get to the Omni website. Or for those of you that subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, uh, please get on and uh, subscribe to the show. And if you're feeling particularly generous, uh, perhaps even leave a comment or a review so we can increase our ratings which are going through the roof at the moment. Uh, I think we're going to have a few extra listeners today uh, because we have an interview with Doron Paluch, who's a partner at Burgess Paluch Legal Recruitment. So this is going to be a, a type of segment we're going, to, we're going to do more and more often where we interview uh, business owners or professionals and ask them a little bit about their journey. Uh, but the discussion with Doron, uh, I think, is going to be particularly interesting today um, because he's going to talk to us a bit about the the workforce in general. Uh, certainly, it's um, it's changed a lot over the last number of years. Uh, I've got two teenage children, and what you keep hearing at school and from people is that you know the jobs that he, that they're going to have don't even exist today. Now, I don't know if that's a little bit of hype, um, but there's no doubt that the job market has changed a lot, and Doron will have a good insight into that uh, through his work as a recruiter uh, for the last, I think, 15 years or so. So that should be a good discussion, but a slightly different twist uh, to what we normally talk about on this show. Uh, and then we get another short segment, hopefully, if we have time, uh, with Sean Herman of Professional Partners. He's a mortgage broker. And the topic of that little segment is Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. So I'm going to leave it at that for now, and I'm going to hope that you will listen to the show right till the very end, and you'll hear that interview. So 
We're going to take a short break with some music and then we're going to get Doron on the phone. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. Whether you're listening live on JR or the podcast, we welcome your SMSs throughout the show today on 47 88 So today we have uh, as our key interview uh, Doron Pullock, who's a partner at Burgess Pullock Legal Recruitment which is a national recruitment for all the major law firms and plenty of others as well. Doron will tell us a bit more about it. Um, but really what we're going to hear from Doron is about his uh, career, his story in business, in the world of business over the years, and also get some insights from him into the job market and how it's changed. Doron, do I have you on the line? Uh, yep, yeah, you got me, and thanks for having me on the show, Reuben. Welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, no, it's good to be here. Excellent, excellent. So, Doron... I want to start with just uh, finding out a little bit about your your career and your journey. Um, so yep. obviously you're in recruiting now, and it's it's not the most common uh, profession for a good Jewish boy. So what was the um, ha- how did it all come about? Well, I think it came about because I was a bad lawyer. Um, <laughs> to be fair, you I, didn't uh, become a I, bad recruiter, did you? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not for me to judge, but I don't think so. Um, no, I, I started off as a lawyer, which maybe is a good Jewish profession, um, and that was at a firm called Herbert Gear and Rundle back in yep. 1998 and 99. Um, it's one of those things where I wasn't particularly motivated, I wasn't driven, you know, and I, I, I think I worked out really pretty early on that it wasn't something I was going to be able to put 100% into. Yeah. So um, when I got married, um, and you know my wife, Aviva, um, in fact... Just as an aside, do you, Ruben, remember where you were 19 years ago this week or last week? Oh, your wedding, was it? You did mention to me the other day. Ah, okay. Yes, I was definitely in Sydney for that. Yep. Yeah, okay. So that's 19 years ago. So about 19 years ago, I got, well, exactly 19 years ago, I got married. So it's today your anniversary? Last week. Ah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. But uh, we got married and uh, at that point, I really didn't know what to do with my career. I was a very junior lawyer. Um, we wanted to go to London, Aviva and I. So we um, we ended up going to London. Aviva had a visa because she had a job in marketing at uh, Kimberley Clark. So just just and, to be clear, yeah. until that point, yeah. you were working as a lawyer until that point. What out of university, yep. you were working as a lawyer for a year or two. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yep. So I was a lawyer for a short time, um, short enough to know what it might have looked like. But look, there were certain things I enjoyed in, in, in the legal profession. We did a lot of work for Shane Warne at uh, the law firm I worked at. Yeah, Was that with um, any of his divorces or <laughs> just his commercial interests? No, there was a lot of IP <laughs> stuff and uh, I don't know. Um, it was a bit of fun, but unfortunately I wasn't assigned to the partner who did that work, so I had to kind of wrangle my way into getting what kind of work I could in that area. Yeah. Um, but generally I was in litigation and did a bit of corporate law as well. Um, so then when you went off to the UK, you didn't have any particular job in no, mind when you went Aviva, there? Aviva did. Yeah. Well, Aviva had a job. I, As her husband at the time, I was entitled to get a uh, unrestricted visa to work yeah. in London, which was great. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I kind of... I saw the idea of recruitment being something that you could utilise your networks and knowledge of the law and legal skills... Um, together with that, uh, the more people-person type, or more people-type yeah. aspect. So that was a bit of fun. Um, anyway, I, got, I ended up getting a job. Uh, look, when we got to London, we were pretty... Uh, I would have probably taken any job that was offered to me within reason. And I've even started... It, it, before she formally started work at, uh, 
at Kimberly Clark. I think she took a bit of a, a job at a bakery for a short time. Really? Um, yeah. Um, so I was ultimately offered a job in recruitment at a company called Hughes Castell. Yeah. Um, I and they specialised in legal recruitment. They were an international company, but they didn't have any presence in Australia. Yeah. So just on it. So you started. You're working in the UK in legal recruitment, and yep. as you mentioned before, it's all about your networks yep. in, in, in recruiting. But you would have had zero networks there, I'm guessing. Well, you're right, and it actually goes further because I was employed as the expert for the southwest of the UK, being areas like Devon, Plymouth, Exeter, Cornwall. Um, I didn't even know how to pronounce some of the places over there. So <laughs> a lawyer would ring up, and I'd say, "I've got a good job for you in Gloucestershire." Yeah, and you didn't even, and you didn't even know I, where uh, that yeah. was. No, I had no idea. But the beauty of it was uh, my managers at the time let me make those mistakes. Well, it might mm. be good, it might not be good. But I only made them once because you make an idiot of yourself a couple of times and you can you pretty quickly learn. Um, so I was, I was given a fair bit of rope and I, um, I was also lucky because the market was pretty good back then. Yeah. Uh, mind you, I don't know if you remember, Ruben, we used to send CVs out in the post. Yeah. Now that's going well. Even in those days, it was all post. I'm just trying to remember if there was email. I remember in my first job, I think I shared a. I mean, there was definitely there definitely was email. My first job at KPMG, I shared a computer with someone, um, but you actually sent. So what year was that? Roughly when was that? That would have been 1998. Yeah, so so this is 1998. I was in London, and we literally just got. I think at the very end of 98. We started sending emails. But you must have but, been uh, using fax machines, I'm guessing. Yeah, or you we probably don't use well. fax machines for resumes because they've got to be confidential, maybe. You're right, yeah. I think mm. in certain circumstances you could, but generally we used to just blast out uh, CVs in the post and it was just, you'd expect, two days later you'd ring the client wow. and say, have you, have you received this in the mail? Um, so um, I, I, I can't even fathom doing that nowadays because everything's instant now. You want to send a CV, I can send it and... 10 seconds later, be on the phone to a partner at a law firm talking about it. That's right. Um, but I guess that means the fact that it's easier to send them means just the volume must just be enormously high because it costs nothing to forward an email, does it? As opposed to printing something out, putting it in the mail, there's still some effort in that. There, there is. And, and there were, just to be fair, there were some systems in place back then where they had a, uh, they had a secretarial pool to kind of minimise the effort, where you'd basically put a list of the law firms you wanted a CV sent to, and it could be done fairly, you know, fairly efficiently, but nowhere near what we do today. Yeah. So that sounds like it was good. So how, how many years were you there in the UK working for Hughes Castell? Yeah, so we were there for a year and a half, yeah. um, and it was really good. It was a great time to go. We were newly married. We had a good time. Uh, we had a lot of visitors over there from overseas when we got there. Um, but uh, after a year and a half, we were probably getting homesick. The weather in London was getting to us. The public yeah. transport was killing me, um, as in the tube over there from North London to the city. So after a year and a half, we decided we were ready to go home. And Hughes Castell asked me to set up the office in Australia for them. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So you were the, uh, fir- again, you were the first person back yeah. here? Yeah, I, was, I literally set up with a phone and a computer in a service office and just started making phone calls. And at that stage, you would have had... I'm guessing if you, if you studied law yourself, you would have had a number of friends and colleagues who are obviously working in law. So was that, yep. um, was that a good head start for you? Yeah, that's when I started calling people I knew. Although th- there was also a little bit of a tough situation where I didn't want to just ring all my friends who are lawyers saying, you know, can I get you a job? It almost felt like, uh, like I was using them. So yeah. I almost, I, I kind of 
did a lot more of that once I was much more established in Melbourne and, and actually had something to offer them. Yeah, it's actually quite similar to me in my sort of financial advice career. I certainly didn't go out and and look for friends as clients. Over time, it happened. Well, you, you weren't shy asking me. Yeah, well, that's true. I could see you were in a lot of trouble. Yeah. I saw that you really needed help. But we've got um, we've actually got a text message about that, Doron, which I'm going to ask you about later. The text messages are just flowing in. I think I our listenership is very, very high today. I'm glad to hear it. Apparently, it's doubled or tripled. Well, my Viva's probably listening, my wife. Exactly. So it's doubled, yeah. certainly on air, but <laughs> I'm guessing we're going to have a lot more podcast listeners today as well. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, so you started... You started the office here, and you yep. hired other staff as well over yep, time? Yep. Or? Paul Burgess came to join me very early on yep. um, in Melbourne. Then we hired a couple of people to do legal secretarial recruitment as a almost as a hand-in-hand with what we were doing, focusing on lawyers. Uh, I then introduced my managers or my boss in London, the owner of Hughes Castell, to a business I knew in Brisbane, and he bought that business. Right. Um, so suddenly we had an office in Brisbane. Uh, we opened offices in Sydney and in Perth. And look, it, it was going really well. We also, again, luck plays a role in business, whether you like it or not. And the market was good at the time. Um, we uh, we made hay while the sun shone. And was there a lot of know. competition at the time? Uh, and how's that how has that changed over the last fifteen years? Is there a lot more yeah. now than there there was, or? Yeah, look, it's a fascinating question because back when I started recruiting uh, in the very late 90s, to take Perth, for example, there were probably only two established recruiters in the Perth market. Um, and all the national firms, your Freehills, your Mallisons, your Minters, Allens, all had offices in the Perth market. Um, Perth was about to embark on a massive boom, uh, which you'd be well aware of. Mm. And today, there's probably 10 established recruiters in that Perth market. Um I actually had a big part of a lot of what was going on in, in, in Perth legal recruitment over that 10 years, but I got in really early and was able to follow the developments of some of these firms. A lot of the international firms have set up there as well in the last few years. Yeah. Uh, so yes. the short answer is yes, there's a lot more competition now than there was, um, and one of the advantages we had is that we probably started before most of them. And experience is a big part of success in, well, again, any business, but particularly recruitment. Mm. And it's interesting, I mean... I always look at something like recruitment and think there's not enormous costs or barriers to entry to get into it. It's not like you've got a, you know, if you've got to buy a restaurant and you've got to fit out for 300000 And it's a little bit similar in my business as well. It doesn't cost a huge amount to get started. But I guess yeah. the issue is more, you know, how long does it take you to actually generate an income? Yeah. That, 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 Again, and I get that a lot too. I literally started with a phone and a computer and literally that's all you need to be a recruiter. Mm. There's no barrier to entry. Yeah. But I see a lot of recruiters, not only in legal, but in any industry, could be accounting, IT, whatever it is, engineering, um, who do start up with a lot of bluff and bluster, but close down very shortly after. Yeah. Because even if they're not losing much money, they're not making much either. Yeah. So you've really it got to have it. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than spending capital up front, you've got to have enough money there to cover your income expenses. And I guess that depends on if you've got a family or whatever, but if you don't have an income, you know you might be spending a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand a year on your costs. 
you know, and you, yep, and yep. Not, you don't have an income to cover that. So yeah, and look, and given, and also given the competition there is nowadays, again, like with any business, but you, you know, you're going to want to have some fair investment in your SEO, your search engine optimization right. stuff. You're going to want to know you've got some international networks uh, hooked up with yourself. Um, you're going to want to know that you are working with people who are established and know the market. Um, so, just starting up on yourself can be can be dangerous unless you do know. Unless you know what you're doing. You know the industry, you've got a good network. So you're with Hughes Castell for a number of years, and then uh, then what was the path from there to uh, Burgess Pollock? Okay, so Paul and I had been at Hughes Castell for, it must have been about six years, and as I said before, it had grown quite nicely. There were offices around Australia, but it kind of became big, which we never really intended particularly, Um we lost the bespoke feel. Um, there ended up being about four layers of management. Mm. There was me, there were other general managers, there was a managing director in Australia, there was a managing director in London. So if you wanted to negotiate a fee with a law firm, it had to go through four layers of management and you didn't know what was going on. But Paul and I just decided, look, we've given everything we can to this business um, and we thought we might be able to better offer what we wanted to offer in our own boutique agency. Right. Right, so then you guys left and started so, up yourselves. That how was that transition? Was that clearly you were you, know, you were starting in competition with your old employer? Was that a hairy time, that transition look, period? It was a little bit. Um, again, our attitude was that we had given really a fair bit to uh, Hughes Castell. We also thought that. Um, uh, I think we were generally pretty honest about what was going on. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't offer us anything that would have justified us staying much sure. further. Yeah. And therefore, we decided we'll set up on our own. We we observed a few restraints to do the right thing, but ultimately, we knew that yeah. we had to make that move. Yeah. At the end of the day, no one can stop you from earning a living. I know they have those legal restraints, but usually they're a maximum of three, six yeah. months or so. Yeah, and so. even then... Yeah, and like I said, you want to do the right thing by your past employer. There's no That's point right. leaving on, on nasty terms. Um, so we tried to do the best we could. Are they still in the market here? They were, again, everything was getting so big. They were purchased by a Dutch company called Select Video. Then they were purchased by another company, I think, called Randstad. And I think I think they've probably just about vanished by now. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, there tends to be all these takeovers and you don't quite know where you started. So... Yeah. So now you've been Burgess Park. It's been what ten years or more even? Uh, it has. It's probably been about twelve, eleven or twelve. 10, yeah, something like that. So, um, so, so the business started off with just you and Paul, and now how many? Just me and Paul. How many how are many? there well, now? Now there's again. We're being very careful to make sure we don't fall into the old traps that Hughes Castell fell into. But we've got offices around Australia, but small offices. Um, we're also very closely in touch with all of them, and. We have in Melbourne, there's probably about 10 of us. Yep. So, and but look, Paul and I are still very involved in, in, uh, in the billing and recruiting process. Yeah, yeah. You, haven't, you're and, not, you don't have uh, layers of management or no, any of that kind no, it's, of thing. It's a, it's a fairly flat structure. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, um, the manager of our Sydney office, Kirsty, has been, we've known her for 15, 20, back from the Hughes Castell days. Um, and, you know, she's earned her seniority. But generally, we, our attitude is that people um, who we employ, we like to think they're not going to take the piss. 
we'd like to think that they're generally going to um, put enough pressure on themselves that we don't need to put pressure on them. Yeah. Now, I just want to start uh, shifting the discussion a little bit. And I know you've got an experience in a particular field, but I want to maybe you've got some more general views. Uh, what we hear about, and we've, got, we've both got teenage kids, and you go to school and you hear people talking about careers and they're saying that in the future, the careers that, you know, that, that our kids are going to have haven't even been invented today. And I always think, yep. oh, that sounds like a little bit of rubbish. I think it might just yep. be hype. But I guess you know, we've lived through a big technological boom you know, from when we finished university, as you said, you were mailing out resumes to where we are today. So yep. I'm interested in your view as to how how the job market has generally changed over that time. Are there lots of jobs that have disappeared? Uh, what, what, what's different about today than what it was back when you left yeah. university? It is a little bit hard to say because I focus so heavily on legal, but I can tell you now already, we all know that IT has been massive. Um, look, my son, Kobe, who you just referred to, he sent me three texts this morning about the new iPhone 10 or X or whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, so they're all they're all... There's no question that technologies for the last 10 years, it's been heavily changing the way business is done. Um, I think already in law firms, I can tell you that there are some jobs that are being made redundant, um, such as some conveyancing or property-related type jobs, where there's software to take care of almost all of that work now instead of lawyers. Yeah. But I still think there's going to be, in most jobs, I think the the personal aspect of things isn't going to be replaced by technology. No, well, that, that part can't. But if we look back, as, a, as you said, when you finished university, the number of law graduates that got jobs out of university as compared to now, has it yeah. dropped dramatically? It, yeah, it has. It, it's brutally competitive. And it, it's, it's kind of uh, one of the, the hard things in my job is I do get a lot of calls from graduates. Um, and these are guys who did their five years at uni and studied their law or whatever it was. Um, and some people who haven't done law call me as well, but it's very frustrating that it is so hard for these people to get jobs. Yeah. Uh, law companies, not just law firms, companies are being very selective. Um, the starting point is almost invariably your academic results. Yeah. So if you didn't do well at uni, and by well I mean honours or first-class honours, you're almost automatically wow. ruled out from the top companies. And, uh, and you're left to scramble around trying to get something at the smaller firms or mid-tier firms, which can often be very, very good roles. Sure, sure. But, but there's, it's still very competitive. But there's a, are there more law students than there used to be? Yeah, there are. I don't know exact numbers, but there yeah. are, and there's, there's, there's a lot more law universities. Victoria University set up some years ago. Um, back in my day, you really wanted to go to Monash or Melbourne Uni in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, Deakin, Latrobe, Victoria Uni all offer good law degrees now, but still, Melbourne and Monash are seen are the best too. Yep. Okay, you are listening to the Finance Hour live on Jair or on our podcast. We are talking with Doron Pulloch from Burgess Pulloch Legal Recruitment, and we are talking about how the uh, the job market has changed uh, since Doron started his career back in the old days in 1998. So, Doron, I think your your perspective on how difficult it is to get jobs out of university, I'm guessing that yeah, that's across a lot of the disciplines as well. I'm guessing that yeah, that's the same thing across commerce, marketing, uh, and the like. It Yeah, so it seems like, uh, like that's a common thing. So if you had any advice for people you know, going to university and coming out, what would that be? Uh, 
Um, I think you've got to, you, you touched on this before, but you've got to really, first of all, try, try and do as best as you can at uni because yeah. it's going to count and it'll stick with you for years. Um, five years, like I still get law firm partners who, when they're applying for jobs, they get asked for academic transcripts. Really? Yeah, so your academic results do count. Um, the other thing is networking. Networking and extracurricular activities, which have always been important, are even more important now when things are so competitive. Yeah, yep. So okay. I think they're all things you've got to be on to. Yeah, and obviously once you get in the door, the next stage is the interview, or that's really the yeah. first stage. So that's, it's really important to perform there. What sort of traps, tips and traps do you have around, around interview techniques? Uh, quite a lot. Uh, we, we, before we set up interviews for anybody, we usually counsel people quite extensively because, uh, to be honest, getting an interview is a big part of it, but the way, obviously the way you perform in the interview is going to be massive. And yeah. if you're not prepared, you, you're in big trouble because things are so competitive, you've got to, be, you've got to stand out. Um, so we have a lot of, I, I have a lot of thoughts and ideas about how people can best prepare, prepare for interview depending on what type of role they're going for. Yeah. But even a starting point I might suggest is um, people often tell me they're nervous and they don't know how they're going to go. Now, you follow Collingwood, don't you? Yes, I do. You don't just follow Collingwood. You're a mad Collingwood supporter. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. So do you remember a guy named Gavin Brown? I sure do. His son's playing okay. for us now as well. He's played about three yeah, or four games this year. Yes, I'm sure I remember Gavin. He, he's actually, I think he's still at Collingwood. As a, he's been an assistant coach at Collingwood for years. I think he might have just left, actually. I don't know. But this could very easily become a footy conversation, which would mean we'd need a few hours. Yeah, that's but true. Gavin Brown um, retired. This will test you, but do you remember how old he was? He would have been about 31, 32. Okay, yeah, give or take. A lot of people thought he had another year in him, from what I remember. And I do remember an interview or hearing... He had dodgy coming... hamstrings towards him. <laughs> Okay, well, that might say Nathan Buckley. So, you know, but, but even so, a lot of people thought he had another year in him. And when he was asked why he wasn't going on for another year, his official answer was, when I run onto the field, I no longer have butterflies in my stomach. Yes. In other words, he said, I'm not nervous anymore, and I need those nerves to perform at my uh, maximum. Right. So when you, and just to make a bit of a silly analogy, when you're going for an interview, it's, it's okay to be nervous. You should be nervous as long as you can channel those nerves and, and you utilise them to perform to your best. Right, right. So it's not something that you should fight. But I guess there's a balance, isn't there? You oh, don't want to be... No. You, you don't you have don't sweat there, running sweat, down, no. your, <laughs> down your face. That's actually happened to me in an interview before. Yeah, well, you were... Uh, I was just very it. nervous and I was sweating and sweating and it was just terrible. It was like a nightmare. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's not a good look. But, no. Uh, and that's the other thing. That's actually hard to control. So all you can do is have a couple of cups of coffee, try and uh, try and relax a little bit, and um, have coffee to relax. Is that your tip? Well, have coffee. Have a couple of coffees to relax. Coffee to pep you up. <laughs> yeah, I it guess helps. it can. Not, it, not a not a couple of whiskeys. Right. So a bit of nerves is good. A bit of nerves oh. is good. Um, generally, you've also got to be very prepared for an interview. So I, yeah. I think there are often about three stages to any interview. And the first stage might is generally tell us about yourself. You know, you need to, and all you can do in that is study your own CV. There are yeah. often behavioural questions that you've got to be prepared for. Um, you know, the old, uh, what are your strengths and weaknesses? And I, I don't know if you'd be comfortable saying, but it can be a very hard or, or confronting question if someone asks you, Reuben, tell me about your weaknesses. But do How people do really that? say what they are, or are they just, 
I've had that question before, and I think I just made up something that was negative but was really a positive. Yeah, you do. That, is that, that the trick? That's all you can do. <laughs> occasionally, you get some. Uh, occasionally, you get some uh, uh, muppet who decides to tell a real weakness and say, "I've got no attention to detail." Um, <laughs> you can't. What, what I just say is, look, sometimes I'm just too committed. And I just yeah, that's, and I just put other people ahead of myself just too much yeah. sometimes. And to be honest, that's what most people do. It's it's become very cliched to say that. Yeah. Sometimes a law firm will challenge. What they say exactly what on. I've said. Exactly what you've said. Really? I, I'm too committed, or I, I, I sometimes I uh, I work too hard, and I uh, <laughs> I need to kind of. Um, but look, all you can give what what you can do is give a give an answer of a weakness that used to be a weakness, but isn't anymore. Something yeah. like. When I started as a young professional, I had some issues prioritising my work because I had a lot of partners giving me work at the same time. But I identified the issue. I, I addressed it by speaking with the partners and I developed strategies to improve it. And I'd like to think I'm on top of that now. Right, right. So again, it's a bit of a cheeky way of saying, I, I hear I had a weakness, but I'm and working I worked on it. It's interesting because this, a lot of people say to me, the work that I do in financial advice, we should be doing it in schools. And I have been doing it a little bit. Yep. But what you're talking about is really just as important, coaching well, people well, from an early stage. And is it something that, you know, you can just have a 10-minute conversation with somebody and coach them on their interview techniques, or, or yeah, does it, it take a bit longer for it to really sink in? I, I, what we would usually do as a, as a process is I'll usually spend about half an hour talking to people about preparing for the interview. Um, whether they, they go off and do the required research beyond that, well, that's up to them. And it doesn't guarantee you anything other than you'll go into this interview prepared, which gives you a much greater chance of securing the role. Yes, yeah. So, anyway, I'll go further. The second part of an interview is often a firm wants to know, what do you know about us? You know, and, and, and all you can do, because you've got to be prepared. If you're not interested, apparently this is like dating. I haven't done that for a long time, so I don't know. Yeah. But if a law firm doesn't think you're going to take a job, they're less likely to offer it to you. Sure. And that'll apply across the board, not just to law again, but to other industries. So um, you can study webs the website. You have to study the firm website or the company website before you go to an interview. You can do some Google searches. Again, you've got to do what you can to look prepared and to look interested. Sure, sure. So that's really, that's really the basics well. It is. It's more. It's the basics because if you go into an interview and a company doesn't think you've taken the initiative or, or even had the basic level of interest to look them up or study what they do or what kind of company they are before you go into the interview, you got no chance. But these days, it's usually just not one interview, is it? It's it's a series of yeah. them before you get yeah. the job. How many interviews have... would it normally take for, say, a mid-level law legal position? At least two. Oh, no two. more than no more than four, at least two. Yeah. Usually two, and then references. Oh well, that's not too bad. No, and it's usually with two different. But you might interview with some HR people and follow it up with another interview with uh, with partners. There's often a less formal interview at third stage with other people you'd be working with. But that's that's already kind of a rubber stamp. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add on interview techniques that our listeners might be interested in? Uh, yeah, look, just that uh, I think it's important people ask questions at interviews. Yeah. I think um, you've got, again, it's part of showing that you're interested, but you do need to ask questions. I once didn't get a job. It was at Blake's, actually, about 20-plus years ago because I'd done so much research on the firm that I didn't have any questions. When I, found, when I asked them why I didn't get the job, they told me it was because I, 
I hadn't asked questions and they thought I wasn't interested. So, so uh, Now that's interesting actually in itself that you asked them why you didn't get the job. I wonder I if a lot of people yeah. do that. Do you, encourage your, do, you, do you encourage your candidates to do that? Well, we will usually find out for them so that we can give them feedback for their next, next round of interviews at another company. Right. So you'll find that out and give, and give that give that feedback to them. Yeah, absolutely. When yeah, we can, really sometimes sometimes companies once they've kind of passed on somebody, they can't be bothered wasting any more time giving feedback. But we do our best to try and get feedback because again, it'll help to find out what you need to do to improve your interview style. All right, Doron. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We've been speaking to Doron Pollock, director at Burgess Pollock Legal Recruitment. Uh, it's been a great to speak to you about your career in business yeah. and also some tips for w- interviewees. Uh, yeah, no worries. It's a pleasure, and I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to for you to have had me on your show. Okay, thanks a lot, Doran. Now, stand, or, hang around and listen. Well, I'm going to cut you off here, but listen on, Jair. Our next uh, segment is called Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. So I think it's something that you should definitely listen to. <laughs> yeah, relevant. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Welcome back to the Finance Hour. Whether you're listening live on Jair or indeed on our podcast, uh, we've just had an interview with Doron Pollock from Burgess Pollock Legal Recruitment. And now we have a special segment today, which is called Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. We have Sean Herman from Professional Partners joining us. He's certainly not the liar here, but uh, Sean is a director of Professional Partners, which is a mortgage broker based in the city and servicing clients all around Melbourne, mainly the eastern suburbs, but around Australia as well, I believe. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ruben. How are you doing? Good to have you here. I'm doing very well. Sean, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know you're a mortgage broker for prof- uh, and a director of professional partners. Tell me a little bit about the clients and the sort of that you specialise in. So we've been broken for 13 years now. My background is a chartered accountant. Yeah. Um, tend to work in the professional market, age demographic, 30 to about 45, 50 year old. Um, our clients are generally time poor, looking for a advisor they can work with on a initial and ongoing basis to help them with their finances and, and mortgage requirements. Excellent. Sounds good. Now, Sean... Uh, yes. The banks have been back in the news again. They yep. seem to always be in okay. the news. This was like a fairly, you know, uh, it probably slipped by a lot of people, but it certainly piqued my interest uh, in the in ABC News. It said, mortgage fraud, 500 billion of liar loans in Australia, warns investment bank UBS. Did you hear about that? And what's your take on that? Yeah, I saw, I saw the article. Um, I think... It's an interesting one. I mean, the, um, possibly a bit more media sensational than anything else. Um, <laughs> I mean, really? Sean, do I have you back on the line? Yeah, yeah. So, so pretty much, um, what I'm not sure about is whether it ha- is that bigger occurrence of call it lie, lie loans. I think the implication is that people are lying or defrauding the system, whereas there's obviously a difference between someone outright line about their income or about their commitments and liabilities versus someone telling the bank that they spend in $4,000 a month when they might be spending $5,000 a month on personal expenses. And I think think that's where there needs to be a differentiation between, are we talking about fraud, as in someone 
say, they're earning $100,000 and they're only earning $50,000? Or are we talking about someone saying they think they spend $3,000 a month when in reality they might be spending three and a half or $4,000 a month? Yeah. I, think, I think that's a distinct difference. Yeah, look, I also say this was... This report was published by UBS Bank, so it was published by a stockbroker, and they only surveyed about 900 people, and their thesis at the end was saying how the banks uh, are unable to grow their profits, and they've actually got sells on all the banks. So you'd have to say they maybe had a bit of an ulterior motive to to paint this particularly bad, because their viewpoint was the bank's business model is struggling a little bit in the current market. So I guess... What that what but what the article was saying is that yes, people are potentially when they're doing the applications, they're understating what their expenses are. They're you know, perhaps overstating their income, but I'm guessing you have to verify their income quite carefully anyway. Absolutely. But what they did suggest is that if people get into mortgage stress, there may be litigation against the banks because they never assess that properly. Yeah. I think I think it comes back down to who's responsible for what, and that's becoming a very contentious issue right now, as in, is the consumer responsible for the, the obligation, or is it the bank's responsibility on the consumer? And I mean, it's taken aside the income, so if someone's um, incorrectly state the income and somehow it wasn't verified, that's obviously, a, a, in my eyes, a fraud in, on, on the system, but if someone says they spend in $4,000 a month and they're spending more than that or less than that or, or if someone says their superannuation balance is worth ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 more than it really is. I mean, the truth is no one really has these figures at hand and no one really no. knows with, with accuracy what anything's worth. Um, how much is my car worth? How much is my loan worth? How much is exactly. my um, property worth? Well, it's worth a different, a different amount every day. And well, exactly. And how much am I spending? Well, this year I might have had a family holiday Next right. year, I don't have a family holiday. This year, I might have to repair on my house. Next year, I don't have a repair on my house. So it's a very, very fluid numbers we're talking about. Um, obviously, I think there needs to be responsibility from both the consumer and the lender yeah. to exercise responsible lending. But I don't believe the consumer can um, 100% advocate their responsibilities and say, Absolutely. well, the bank will give me the money and therefore I'm not responsible if I can't pay the money back. That's right. Now, now, just talking about that in terms of assessments, so from what I hear, people applying for loans has got a whole lot more difficult in the last six months or even year. Is that the case? It's the case, but it's only, it only applies to certain segments of the market. So yeah. if you were an owner-occupied purchasing a property, principal and interest loan you're applying for, and you never had any other properties or anything like that, um, you wouldn't have noticed much difference in your process or ability to get finance. That really hasn't changed much. Where it's changed a lot is people that are looking for interest-only loans, people right. with existing investment properties or other loans. Um, that's where it's become a lot more difficult. So it's, so what the what, what APRO is doing or what the banks are doing is they focusing on certain segments of the market that are deemed to be high risk, and that would be your interest-only loans, your people with multiple properties such as going out and buying more and more properties because yeah. they believe the market is going to go up, and that's their strategy. Um, that's where things have really, really tightened up a lot. Um, your average home buyer, PAYG employed, purchasing a home, going on a 30-year P&I mortgage, 
they wouldn't have experienced much difference today from six months or a year ago. Right. But the banks, when they're assessing loans, they do something called stress testing. Do you want to yes. explain a little bit about what that means and has that, in fact, changed at all over the last yeah, period so, of time? So what time? banks do is when, when they do stress testing, they generally assume, and it varies from bank to bank, but they would assume around about an interest rate of, let's say, 7.5%. Yep. So at the moment, your, your home loan interest rates might be as low as 3.6%. The banks would assume a repayment on the 7.5% rate. So that's wow. almost four percentage points so higher that, than... that actually. more than doubles what your, you know, your, your, your repayments would be. Absolutely, yeah. That's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Has it always been so that, that much of a difference? No, because interest rates haven't always been that low. So the 7.5% right. has generally always been there. But what used to happen is when interest rates were at 6%, the differential wasn't as high. Yeah, it was about like a 30% difference. Now it's 100%. Yeah, now it's correct, which is yeah. good. So that way they stress testing the system to say, taking out the year loan, over the next three years, interest rates will go up again, and we therefore going to stress test at a higher rate. Um, where things have changed a lot is in the past, um, if you had other properties, other loans, they would take your actual repayments on those loans. So if you had an interest-only loan for a million dollars, they would assume that your repayments might be, I don't know, $4,000 a month or whatever it is. Um, now what they're doing is they're using the gain 7.5% on a 25-year term, which would equate to maybe eight or $9,000 a month. Right, and 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 that's where that's where things have changed for people with existing properties and existing loans. They they stress testing that they they stress testing the entire portfolio, as opposed to only stress testing the loan you're applying for. I think that's that's a, a good way of summarising it. Right, so it is getting harder in certain segments, but I suppose Absolutely. if you're well prepared and a and a well backed borrower, it's it's not like all the they've closed up shop. Is that fair to say? No, and just on that note, I'll give you a real example. So um, if, you, if you're applying for, let's call it a $750,000 loan, um, this is where the big difference is. If you apply for interest only, um, your, your actual interest repayments on that loan, your monthly repayments might be $2,400 a month. So on a $750,000 loan, your actual repayments might be about $2,400 a month. When the bank stress tested, they're going to assume that your repayments are close on $4,700 a month. Wow, that's just a massive, massive Actually, difference. more, hold on, five and a half minus that, five and a oh half thousand. Oh, my gosh. So, so... You'd want to have a pretty secure income. Absolutely, with the bank stress. But that's just the bank stress testing, though. It's like your repayments are still two and a half a month, but the bank's going to assume repayments would be five and a half when they assess whether or not they're going to give you that loan. Excellent. All right, Sean, thank you very much for joining us. We've been speaking to Sean Herman, Director of Professional Partners, a mortgage broker that specialise in the uh, professional and executive space. Sean, thanks very much for your time, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thanks. No problem, Ruben. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay, we will take another short break and then be back for the final segment of Propellerhead of the Week. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. It is time for Propellerhead of the Week. And my Propellerhead of the Week this week is all about kids and their bank accounts. 
So my recommendation is that you should set up your children once they get to the age of 11 or 12 with two bank accounts. Number one is a savings bank account and that account should have bonus interest attached to it if you make regular deposits but don't make any withdrawals. And then I also recommend that you set up a spending account for them, which should be a low fee account that's got a debit card attached. And they shouldn't have a huge balance in that, but but I would suggest that you either allocate them an allowance throughout the year, perhaps a weekly allowance, uh, or or and get them to uh, do some work and place the money in that account. Uh, but I recommend you do it on a weekly basis. So then what they have to do is use that account for any spending they do both during the school year and in the holidays. It's going to teach them to budget and they will spend their money on an attached debit card to the account. And I really think this is a great way, first of all, to reduce the stress. They don't have to come and ask you for money all the time. They can, they should have an app on their phone which shows them exactly what the balance is at any time. And they can always, if they want to, dip into that savings account. I wouldn't keep a, a lot in the savings account, but it's probably a good lesson for them as well to think, well, if they really want those extra pair of runners, they can dip into their savings account, but then they won't get that bonus level of interest. So my recommendation, set up your banking for your kids early on, get them used to budgeting and spending their money, and hopefully it will create less stress in the household. Well, that's all from me today from the Finance Hour. Uh, If you want to listen to any previous podcasts, please uh, Google the Finance Hour and you can find our shows on the Omni website. Alternatively, you can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. If you have any feedback for me, uh, shoot me through an email to advice at adaptwealth.com.au or post something on the Adapt Wealth Facebook page.